0: Well, it is a children's church Sunday, and if you're a child and you would like to go down to children's church, you may do so now. You Go ahead and file out of the aisles, and head downstairs where Pastor Chris and Megan will worship with you down there, and we can worship up here. Two notes before we get into the sermon this morning, um, the Lord uh The Lord has me going down next week and the week following, Sunday to Friday night, at a church in southern Utah, it's a church in Beaver. Uh, They wanted me to come back in April to uh, speak for their annual Bible conference, uh, which is a Sunday through a Friday. And um, that was when we had the emergency at our house and uh, things were all up in the air and so I I called them and I I asked them if that could be postponed and the postponement date is... uh, next week. So uh, Pastor Chris will be preaching in the morning service, and then I'll be gone uh, the rest of that week down in Beaver uh, speaking for uh, their Bible conference, and I would really appreciate your prayers along those lines. Also, it is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, as you know, Memorial Day is a special celebration or a remembering. It's not a celebration so much. It's different from the other days that we have on our nation's calendar. The 4th of July, we celebrate our nation's independence and creation. And, um, uh, on Memorial Day, or Veterans Day, we celebrate those who've served, but on Memorial Day, we remember those who gave their lives. They paid the ultimate sacrifice, it, sacrifice for the freedoms uh, that we have. So what we like to do here on Memorial Day is to have a moment of silence followed by a prayer of dedication by one of our men who've served. And I haven't asked him formally, but I'm going to ask Dirk, who is a former captain in the army and uh, to West Point graduate to um, uh, give us a few moments here to observe a moment of silence and then to ask the Lord to bless uh, our nation and to bless those families that are still grieving over their loss and to bless our time in his word. Well, I've had you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and as you can see on the screen behind us, the title for our sermon today is A Stubborn Old Man. Moses is 80, and he is stubborn. Maybe you've met a stubborn old man or two in your days. Moses is being stubborn. One of the great examples of stubbornness is illustrated at the end of World War II the war against Japan. Japan had had a relatively successful campaign right up until the Allies began to focus on them. In the last year of the war, the Japanese lost 1.5 million people. When the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, they lost 90,000 people in an instant. The scientists determined that the blast radius went out at the speed of light. Harry S. Truman, the president at the time, said, we have another one of those weapons, and there's more than that. Where they came from, you need to surrender. There was a six-person panel in charge of Japanese affairs to end the war, and they were deadlocked three against three. Three wanted peace and three didn't. The three who didn't said, oh, they're lying. They probably don't have another one. Oh, it really wasn't that bad. Only 90,000 people perished in an instant. Oh, we can still fight. And so, a few days later, another one was dropped. On a smaller town in a different area, but all the same, 70,000 people perished in an instant. Peace Committee convened again, and they were still deadlocked three against three. The issue was this. The three who did not want to surrender did not like the word surrender. They did not want a foreign ruler coming and ruling over them, and they did not want to be disarmed. They didn't want to have a foreign group come in and say, you will lower your weapons. And eventually, finally, the emperor made an executive decision and ended the war. But those three men, those three holdouts, never did bow their hearts to the surrender their emperor told them to give. Isn't that just like human nature? Isn't that just like a person? To see the great and mighty power of God, to see his exhaustive realm and might. God asks us to do something. He asks us to bow our knee, or he even flat says, you will bow your knee. And we don't like the word surrender. We like holding on to our arms. We like keeping what's ours. And like a mule, we bear up underneath of it, and we refuse to bow our hearts. That can happen to people who don't claim to be Christians. And it can happen to people who follow God. And post-Christ, it can happen to Christians as well. We tend to be a stubborn people, don't we? Well, the Lord is going to deal with a stubborn old man today. What I want us to see is not necessarily what Moses did or said, because we understand stubbornness pretty well, I think what I really want us to look at is how God deals with the stubborn old man. And if you find yourself being stubborn, see if God might not be doing some of these things for you to try to coax you or get your attention or even just shock you, as he did for Moses, into following what he wants. Just as a review, we've been studying through the book of Exodus. We've been working through it. We've gotten through the first three chapters, and we arrive at chapter 4. In chapter 3, the Lord has commissioned Moses. He says, I want you to lead the people out of Egypt. And in the latter part of chapter 3, and in the first part of chapter 4, Moses starts to beg off of this responsibility. And at first, he thinks he has some pretty good excuses. Some excuses that you might think are fairly valid. As did he. He makes five of them. We've already talked about the first four. The first one is, who am I? I'm, I'm a nobody. I've been out here in Midian for 40 years. Nobody remembers me. I'm I'm not capable of doing this. Moses says, well, I'll go with you. It's not about you, Moses. And then Moses says, well, the people, that they're not going to know who you are. They're not going to know your name. How does your name relate to this situation? How are they going to trust you? Who are you? And God says, well, I'm the timeless one. I'm the self-existent king, and I will be for you, whatever you need me to be. I'll lead you out. And then Moses says, well, what about the people? Now, that was what I'm sure, I'm I'm sure Moses thought he was holding two trump cards. My wife and I were playing sequence the other night, and those of you who play sequence know that there are two cards that can be of great help to you, a one-eyed jack and a two-eyed jack. One, I can't remember which is which, you take a coin off the board, and the other one you can put it anywhere you want the beginning of the hand, I was given one of each. And it pained me not to sit there with a big grin on my face, knowing I could do whatever I wanted. Well, Moses, I'm sure, thought he had two trump cards. And he plays the first one. Yeah, God, but the people aren't going to listen to me. I already tried this. Remember 40 years ago, I tried to start something big and they rejected me. They said, who made you ruler and king over me? And God said, we'll show them the signs and they'll believe. (laughs) And then Moses decides, okay, now it's time for the real trump card. And he says, but I'm, I'm slow of speech. Now, again, we said that we're not uh, totally sure what that means. It could mean a lot of different things. It could mean his Egyptian was rusty. He's not a man of letters. He has a speech impediment. It could be false humility. It could mean he's not quick on his feet. Lots of different possible meanings. But God just cuts through all of that and he says, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who made your mouth? I did. And I say that it's perfectly sufficient to accomplish what you want. And so Moses is now fully out of excuses He's out of reasons. But now he has one more statement that he's going to make God, and that's what we're going to cover today. And in this one, Moses flatly refuses to do what God tells him to do. And so let's make that our first point. Moses refuses. Look at verse 13, where Moses just finally flat out refuses God. He says, Now, uh, he says, But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. I want us to notice a few things. Look at where he says, but oh my Lord. Look at that word Lord. Do you notice how that word is written in your translations? How is that written? Well, if you go back up to verse 2 and look at that word Lord and see how that one's written. Do you see in verse 2 how that one is written? Now go down to verse 13 and see how the one in verse 13 is written. What's the difference? Yeah, one is lowercase and one is all capitalized. In Hebrew, there are two different words that are translated with Lord. One is Yahweh, the self-existent one, the the King of kings, the Lord of lords, this person that's appearing to him in the burning bush and not consuming it, the all-powerful, mighty God that's spelled with all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals. And then there's a lower word that's the word Adon or Adonai sometimes. And it can mean master, it can mean Lord for sure, but master, essentially what it is, it can mean a lot of different words for one who's higher than me and Moses who's talking To the I am deliberately lowers the value of the person that he's talking to. Who are you? I'm the self-existent one, the great I am. And I will be for you whatever you need me to be. I am. Okay, master. Send someone else. You hear what he's doing. He's reducing God. The second thing that Moses does is he steps above God. The first thing he does is he lowers God and then he steps above God and issues God a command. Our translations do a sufficient job. Oh, my Lord, oh, Adonai. Please send someone else. In English, we do that. We put the please ahead of it. But in this case, in Hebrew, the please comes afterward. It's a polite way of softening a command to be sure, but it's a command. Master, you send, please, whomever you'll send. So not only does Moses lower the estimation of God in his speech, but then he stands over God and begins to issue God commands. This command is specific. The Lord needs to find somebody else. I'm not doing it. And if you want this to be done, you're going to have to find somebody else. Lord, you send someone else. Pretty please. Well, this is just he's run out of excuses. He's not offering any rationale. He's not saying it's because I'm bad at speech or because I'm afraid or any other such thing. He's just digging in his heels and saying no. In Psalm 32 verses 9 and 10, we are told, be not like the horse or mule that has to be led with bit and bridle. It won't be curbed unless you Wrench that poor animal into pain to get it to where you want to go. When I was about Charlotte's age, I was given my very first job of all time. I was sent to a petting zoo. And there I was supposed to lead a mule around a three-mile course. The mule's name was Annabelle. Annabelle was, well, it was a donkey. The children would, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, Moms, I don't know if you would be comfortable taking your children to a petting zoo to pet a donkey, but this is the 80s, and they did things differently back then. I was supposed to go give Annabelle some exercise. I grabbed Annabelle. They're going to pay me by the hour to walk Annabelle. I grabbed Annabelle, and Annabelle was stubborn, but she wasn't dumb. And Annabelle knew she weighed more than I did. I grabbed Annabelle. We walked down the trail, and the instant we got out of eye shot from the owner... Annabelle sat down and started eating the nearest green things that her little nose could get to her. I took the rope and I pulled Annabelle as hard as I could. I took a stick and smacked Annabelle on the backside. Annabelle did not move a muscle and sat there for probably 20 or 30 minutes. I despaired of getting Annabelle to move and just sat down. Finally, Annabelle got up cut across, because the path went up and way around, Annabelle cut right across, shortened the path, and walked out, walked into the entrance, and walked out the exit, like a pro. And I thought to myself, now I know why the phrase is stubborn stubborn as a mule. Well, this is Moses. He has dug his heels in, He's not going to move. He's not going to go. He's not going to do what the Lord wants him to do. In fact, he's done a bit of a trick. He attempts to knock God down a peg and begins to issue commands to Yahweh. Hopefully that will explain what happens next. What happens next is God's response. And like I said before, God gives four responses. And the first response that God gives is that he lets his anger be known. God lets his anger be known. It says right here in chapter 4, verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against God. Moses. The word anger in Hebrew has a rich usage. It's used seven different times in the Hebrew word for, uh, there's seven different words in the Hebrew language for anger. This word means the nostrils of God flaring open. Now we're not told here how it was that the heat of the Lord was kindled, but apparently there's a, a sort of intensity or a voice or a flaring up of the flame some way in which God's anger was made obvious to Moses. And we know this because Moses is telling us how else would he have known unless God made it obvious. But there's another thing about this word here too. This word anger is not like our English word for to smolder. Many of us, when we get angry, we are pretty good at hiding it. And we can disguise our anger for some time. But then, before long, manifestations of that anger start to come out. This word that's used here always has a visual breaking out that accompanies it. This is the sort of anger that's internal, yes, but it spills over into actions, and everybody can see it happen. In, Genesis, in uh, Exodus 32, verse 10, the Lord says that his anger was kindled upon the people, and he says, I'm going to destroy them. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses for his wife of all things. And it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and Miriam turned leprous. There was an outbreak of anger upon these people. But God's anger is different. God's anger is not like ours. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 7. Micah is in the back of your Old Testament. Turn to Micah. If you find Jonah, it goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. You find those. It's on page 777 of your pew Bibles if you want to turn there. Well, Micah is on 777, but this passage I'm having you turn to is on page 780, 781. Micah 7.18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his, his inheritance? This is our word. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Yes, this event, this excuse, this intransigence from Moses, his lowering of God and his commanding of God, resulted in a swift display of God's just and righteous anger. But God loves steadfast love and mercy more than he loves his anger. And God is willing to overlook sins and cast them under his feet and throw them into the deepest sea. God, in fact, makes great provisions so that his anger doesn't break out against us. He shields us from his own righteous anger with His sac- with the sacrifice of his son. So, yes, God does get justifiably angry, but he takes care of it himself, as it were. Well, God lets his anger be known to Moses. His anger was shown to Moses. Number two, God allows, I say here a seemingly helpful expedient, but maybe I should say a temporarily helpful expedient. God says, I tell you what, Moses... I'm sending Aaron. In fact, I've already sent him. He's on the way. God was providentially over the situation. He says, Aaron can speak well. And he says, and Aaron's heart will be glad to see you. God says, Moses, I'm sending you Aaron. Even though you haven't listed this as an excuse, I'm giving it to you now. Aaron will be your companion. He'll be your friend. You guys will have fellowship yet again. And he can be the one to speak for you. And God says, and you know what? I'm not. I'm not even removing you from authority in this situation. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. He says, but I'm going to send you Aaron, and he will be a help to you. Now, this is what God sometimes does. He sometimes allows us an expedient. But very often when we ask for and are granted that expedient by God allowing it, we end up really regretting it in the end and that would be the situation for Moses. Aaron is an expedient for him, but Aaron was a source of constant grief moving forward. Aaron would be the one who fashioned the golden calf in chapter 32. Aaron, as we said before, spoke against Moses and his Cushite wife. Aaron had two sons named Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, and they Burned a strange type of fire on the incense on the altar, and God killed them and took them immediately. It was a scandal in the nation. And so, yes, God gave God allowed Moses this compromise, but in the end, Moses really wished he could have done without it. But God, in his mercy, allows this, God is merciful even in his anger. You can see Judges chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak, or Barak. Uh, He wants an expedient. Deborah, please come with us. I won't go unless you go. He's stubborn and afraid. She says, that's fine, but you won't get any of the credit. A woman will. Or there's 1 Samuel 8. The people say, give us a king. We want a king to go out and fight our battles for us. God allows this expedient, but says, be warned. He's going to take your best people and your crops and your best stuff and you're going to groan under him. And in fact, that is what happened. Friends, be careful. Be careful when God is asking you to do something. And you just insist on some compromise. God might grant it to you. He's merciful. But I think you'll find that in the end you'll regret that. Maybe you would ask for a specific situation and I would be hesitant to give you one because I think they're a little different for every person, but I think you would know it if you saw it. And I think some of you have experienced that in your lives and you would say, yes, I wish I hadn't settled for that because in the end, it was far more trouble than worth. And if I would have just had the faith to pursue God, it would have turned out so much better. The third thing God does is he promises to sustain Moses. He says, I myself, if you look at verse 16, verse 15, he says, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. That phrase, and I will be with your mouth, is really emphatic. It's the I is kind of the central part of that phrase, and should be underlined. God says, I am I myself am going to be the one to speak to you, and I will even teach you. God is promising a few things here. He promises to be with them. He promises his sustaining presence, and he promises his continual instruction. But the other thing God promises Moses with this promise is he's, he's, he's not telling him, Moses, even though you've been stubborn, I'm not going to bench you. I'm not going to sideline you. When I was in the eighth grade, there was I played on the eighth grade basketball team, and we had a very talented point guard. And our very talented point guard also happened to be a bit of a ball hog who didn't like to pass the ball or run the plays that the coach called. And whenever this point guard became too selfish, the coach would take him out of the game and put him on the end of the bench and would hand him a ball and say, You want to hold a ball? There. Hold your ball on the bench. Eventually, our very talented point guard began to share the ball, which was a disappointment to me because that meant I went to the bench. Well, God doesn't. God's promising not to bench Moses. He says, I'm, I'm going to keep you in the game. You're still going to be the prophet. I'm going to sustain you. I, myself, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to help you. I will tell you what to say, and you will even stay where I want you to be. God promises to sustain him. And then the last thing God does is he provides Moses a visible symbol of his authority. He says, In Moses, verse 17, take in your hand this staff in which you shall do the signs. Moses was very shaken by this event. Now, one thing that we need to remember is that these stabs, these staffs that people carried around, they were super common. Almost everybody had a walking stick. Everybody had a staff. They were helpful in many different ways. They beat off animals, especially in the shepherding culture. But even people outside of the shepherding culture very frequently carried staffs. Ladies carried stabs. Men carried stabs. In fact, people carried their stabs, and as you might imagine, people got attached to their staff, and they would get a highly personalized staff, and that was theirs, It would be carved a certain way, and other people would recognize it, so much so that it served as a bit of identification. In Genesis 38, 18, for example, um, Judah gives his staff to a prostitute as his own personal identification. Foolish thing to do, but he did it. Moses is so shaken by this event, he leaves his staff sitting there, and he's about to walk away from it, and God says, whoa, 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 stop, don't forget your staff. Moses turns around, picks it up, and this staff will become the symbol of Moses' authority, very much so moving forward. With it, he wows the Israelites. With it, he calls plagues down upon Israel. Egypt, with it, he holds it up to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parts. With it, the Israelites conquer some of the people that are attacking them. With it, he strikes the rock and water pours out. A big boulder. Who gets rock? Who gets water out of a rock? Moses hits it with his stick, that staff. That staff became highly symbolic and a, a, a visual reminder that God wanted to specifically use Moses. This is Moses' personal staff that God wanted to do. So, or God wanted to use, rather. So, Moses digs his heels in. Moses says, I'm not going to go. Moses says, I'm going to lower you, God, knock you down a peg, and I'm going to command you to send somebody else. God rises up. His anger is kindled. But in his mercy, he allows an expedient. He sustains Moses for the job and supplies him for what he needs to do moving forward. Now, we've got one final slide, okay? Before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Are you stubbornly refusing the Lord in some way? That's a a tough question, okay? That I hesitate to ask it because it can lead to morbid introspection that isn't helpful. We have songs in our hymnal, for example, that put on a, uh, put you under unreasonable levels of self-examination. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in here are sinners? Raise your hand if you're a sinner. Okay. <laughs> now, here's my question. My second question, technically. <laughs> if you stare at yourself long enough, what are you going to find? you're going to find it if you start looking for it so I hesitate I'm hesitating here briefly because I don't want you to get morbid or overly introspective however I think we would all agree that there are times when we have stubbornly hard heartedly dug our heels in, and said no. No, I won't do that. Those times are usually obvious to us, and if that's the case for you, I'm sure the Lord has already put on your heart that thing. Why do we do that, though? Sometimes it's really helpful to identify what it is that's creating that stubbornness, and I've got three of them, and we'll close with these applications. Why do we stubbornly refuse? Why do we stubbornly refuse? First of all, I find that fear is often a main culprit in why we refuse. I've listed up here several of them. Fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of man. I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I remember one time I had a fella in here. He owned a prominent business in the area. And he attended one of our services, and he met me at the back, and he said, if I believe what you said today, I will lose my business. And I said, well, what are you going to love more, God or money? And he stormed out of the building. Not because I'd said something mean, but because he loved money more. He was afraid of what might happen to him, what might come of him. He was afraid of the consequences of following God. Sometimes people get afraid, they're fearful of having to say sorry. They're worried about how they'll be received. They're worried about the person I'm apologizing to. Are they going to rub it in? Are they going to lord it over me? Does this mean I'm sacrificing a position that I have with them? What does that mean? All sorts of fears start to pile up and Because of those fears, we take our eyes off of God and what he would have us to do, and we start looking at all these unknowns and worries, and it's fear that really holds us back. And if that's the case, if you find yourself stubbornly refusing the Lord in some way, and fear is the issue, my advice to you is to get to know the character and nature of God. Read how he overcame Moses' fears in every way, at every turn, and even when things looked darkest, God was in control of that situation and had him in the palm of his hand. You need a greater fear. You need a greater fear than the small little fear that's keeping you from obeying. You need the greater fear of the majesty and greatness of God. And that will compel you to obey him. Number two. I found that unresolved anger toward God sometimes derails us, sometimes results in our stubborn disobedience. I have, again, listed up here a few of the ones that I've come across through the years, anger and upbringing, and I will confess there are some people who've had some really unspeakably terrible things happen to them in their childhood years. And I do not minimize those. And it creates a fair amount of bitterness toward those people and toward God. And those bitternesses become unresolved and make it hard for people to obey God. There are events that God has allowed into their lives and they're embittered over that. Often it's not embittered toward things that God has allowed to them but to people that they truly love and they get upset with God that he has allowed this to happen. I've encountered people who are upset with the gender roles that God has for them. I've spoken with men who were angry at God that he expects them to lead their family spiritually. I've encountered ladies who are upset that God would, for example, not allow them to be an elder in a church. And so these grievances toward God can pile up such that when God comes to ask for something, that anger, that unresolved anger toward God gets in the way. And as I did with fear, I would give some advice here. Okay? Here would be my advice. Tell God about it. God has very broad shoulders, and he can handle whatever has upset you. There's a second part to this, though. God does not answer people who come to him in a huff and throw down their complaint and march off. Those very people complained that God did not answer them or hear them, but they didn't stick around to hear what God had to say in return. And so I would advise you to go and lay that at the Lord's feet and then stay there and see what God might say to your situation. See how God might minister to your soul. Open up your Bible and read. Perhaps from the Psalter is a great place to start. And let God begin to speak to those hurts. You can vent on God. That is perfectly good. But God expects us as the clay, not the potter, to come under what God is saying and let him heal us. Jesus is the great physician, and he can begin to resolve unresolved anger. And then our last one, of course, is pride. Pride probably reigns as our biggest enemy. Pride of possessions, pride of ability, pride that causes us to refuse to to admit any error. part of the problem is we don't want to admit that we've been walking away from the Lord for some time. and We wouldn't want to admit that to others, much less to ourselves. And again, my advice to that would be to drink in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We covered this verse in Sunday school today, Philippians chapter 2. Christ didn't grab onto his position of divine regality. He didn't think it's something to be grasped. He was made not just in the form of a person, but in the form of a really lowly person, and then allowed himself to be beaten and killed and crucified. And God has given him a name which is above every name. God has highly exalted him. And I would advise you to go and read the majestic power of Jesus and how he humbly submitted. Let me give one example. I think so far that might be a bit um, theoretical. Let me give one example. Do you remember on the night that the soldiers arrested Jesus? Jesus? All these soldiers, a big gaggle of them, showed up with clubs and swords and so forth. And they come storming into the garden and they surround Jesus and they say. Jesus says, Who are you looking for? And they, they say, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says the name right here. He says, I am. Yahweh, I am. Do you remember what happens? They all hit the ground. Not willingly. The power of the speech of his name knocked them off their feet. And then Jesus allowed them to get up and put handcuffs on him. That is humility. He had a power to just say a word and it would have all gone away in an instant but he had a will that he needed to obey. And he brought his power underneath of that. Those are the sorts of things when we are lifted up in our own eyes that will keep us in a position of humble contrition and usability of the Lord. Okay? Now... Again, I want to be very, very clear. Please don't be morbid and overly introspective. But at the same time, I, I would understand that some of us are under the convicting hand of God. And God is asking you to do something. He's commanding you. and We've been resisting. I would identify... If it's one of these three that I listed, some combination of them or a different one, identify it. And give that to the Lord and start to come under the Lord and follow him. Last thought. Was Moses right about all his objections? Was he a poor speaker? Let's give him the benefit of the doubt, sure. Did the people just really love him and adore him? Did, was Pharaoh putty in his hands and he could get Pharaoh to do whatever he wanted? Was his life without trials moving forward? Was his past ever brought up? Well, Moses was right. All of those things happened, didn't they? It's just that there was a whole part of the equation Moses was leaving out. And that was the might and power of God to bowl them all over and put Moses in a position of great influence. Nobody would be more influential until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God overwhelmed them all. And maybe you've got some legitimate excuses that are true, but don't leave out the God he can take all of those and transform them let's pray father would you give us grace to follow you to obey you and if one of these things fear or unresolved anger or pride has affected us and kept us from following you that you help us to root those things out for we pray all these things in jesus name